Hey friends, it's uh, been some time since I've tried an audio recording of the Substack newsletter. I think I got a little bit lazy, maybe a little bit self-conscious reading these things from my bedroom. Um, but this week's newsletter is especially long, and so I want to give an audio version. But the audio version is not going to have footnotes or sexy photos of robots. So if you want either of those things, please head back to good old-fashioned text. All right, this week's uh, newsletter is a bit of a break from the series that I've been working on, and it's titled How Apple's Vision Pro and AI Will Forever Change Friendship, the year that the future arrived. I'm indulging in an intermission this week from the Millennial Midlife series because as of yesterday's Apple event, I am convinced that we'll look back at 2023 as the year that changed everything. My prediction is that we'll look back at the 2020 to 2022 COVID pandemic with faint memories of baking sourdough and as a mere prologue to the year that sci-fi arrived and the very notion of humanity changed. A lot has been written about AI's existential threat and its effect on jobs, but I haven't seen thorough analysis of how it might transform the way we relate to one another. And this week's newsletter certainly is thorough, one of the longest I've written. So I'll preview my thinking before you commit to 15 or 20 minutes of reading or listening. First, I'm going to argue that we underestimate how much has changed over the past 20 years. And also, we forget how rudimentary today's technologies felt when they first came out, including the iPhone and Facebook. Compared to the last two decades, I think we should expect 10 times more techno-socio-political change over the next 20 years. Number two, until a few months ago, I thought that virtual reality and augmented reality were losing bets. But then I started using this new website and app called character.ai, which I will describe more. And now I'm pretty convinced that the next generation of kids will have more and deeper relationships with their AI friends in virtual reality and augmented reality spaces than with their human friends in real life. I know, this is sad for me too. Already, we have to compete with phones to get the attention of our loved ones. And soon, I think we're gonna have to compete with extra charismatic, attentive, funny, and perfect AI friends. Number three, I used to think of my daily journaling practice as leaving a record of reflections and memories for my future self. Now I think about it as training an immortal AI version of me that will last forever. It's really weird. Number four, thinking about humans and robots, interspecies love isn't just possible, I think it's pretty normal. And I had an interaction with my dog that makes me think this that I'll describe also, all relationships are a little manipulative and a little codependent, and I think this will especially be true for our future AI friends. And finally, number five, if we can't compete with AI friends, can we at least inspire a new romantic movement? Or could artificial intelligence and augmented reality help us maybe become better friends with real life human beings? You could argue that all I do in this piece is describe a world that science fiction writers have been warning us about for decades, which is largely my point. This, 2023, is the year that science fiction became nonfiction. Section one, we underestimate the last 20 years. 
Facebook and Meta turns 20 next year. When the iPhone turned 15 last year, the Wall Street Journal made an adorable mini documentary about how Apple transformed a generation. I link to the video here. Try to remember life before the iPhone, it dares us. 20 years ago, practically all of our social interactions were offline, and we never spent more than two minutes a day looking at our phones. Ezra Klein encourages a thought experiment. Imagine that you time travel back to 1970 and tell someone that you will invent a tiny device that will offer you the sum of all human knowledge. You can look up any questions, any person, any scientific paper, and it's all immediately available to you. Now, imagine telling that same person that you will invent a tiny device that will distract the mind and make us more vain, polarized, and distrustful. Of course, both of those inventions came true, except that they were a single invention. The web, plus social media, plus smartphones changed everything. And yet, what I want to emphasize for this newsletter is just how unimpressive it all was at the start. Facebook was just a boring online directory. Instagram was a way to make our grainy digital photos look even older. And Twitter was basically blogging, but with fewer features. The first iPhone could not record video. It didn't have apps or GPS, and it took a solid minute to load a website. It was like looking at porn in the 1990s. The way we use our phones today was a leap of imagination in 2007. And when Steve Jobs famously announced three products, a mobile internet browser, an MP3 player, and a phone that turned out to be just one. And here I upload my very first photo to Instagram from November 2010, in which you can make out nothing. Okay, next section. How do you define intelligence and when is it artificial? I want to get to why I think that it will be difficult for human friends to compete with AI friends. But first, I need to tackle the most discomforting question, how do we know that the way that humans think is different from the way that machines think? And do we have non-religious language to describe the difference? I wade into some of the academic debate here, so feel free to skip ahead to the next section. In a thought-provoking interview with Cave Metz, the so-called grandfather of AI, Jeffrey Hinton, makes the distinction between an unwise and unfortunate decision. Hinton says that his decades of research and work to model software on the structure of the brain was not unwise, but it has turned out to be unfortunate and regrettable. He worries that AI will flood us with misinformation, that it will displace meaningful work and lead to Terminator-like robot soldiers. But AI skeptics like Gary Marcus ask, why do we even call chatbots quote-unquote intelligent? All they do, after all, is predict the next string of text based on the last string of text. That is not intelligence, they argue, but just st statistical correlation. Emily Bender from the University of Washington and her co-authors claim in an influential paper that AI chatbots are merely quote-unquote stochastic parrots, which is to say that they just repeat things at random and we eagerly assign meaning to their randomness. There's a section from their 2021 paper called Coherence in the Eye of the Beholder, which tries its damnedest to distinguish between human-to-human -human communication and computer-to-human communication. They argue that human-to-human -human -human communication is jointly constructed with shared common ground and communicative intent, whereas text generated by AI chatbots is 
not grounded in communicative intent, any model of the world, or any model of the reader's state of mind. They say that it can't have been because the training data never included sharing thoughts with a listener, nor does the machine have the ability to do that. I want to agree with this, but I'm just not convinced. I think that all the machine needs is a microphone. The more that I think about it, the more that I'm swayed by Sam Altman's view that we are all so-called stochastic parrots that we all construct what we're going to say next based on what we have seen and heard in the past. There is nothing special or unique about how a human communicates with another human versus a computer. In the end, it's all just inputs and outputs. To quote Matt Iglesias, what makes you so sure that I'm not just an advanced pattern matching program? And I have yet to find a persuasive response. Next session, se uh, section, <laughs> I guess VR has a future after all. We knew that Apple has long been developing an AR VR headset, even before 2019 when Kevin Kelly published the Wired cover story, AR will spark the next big tech platform. I was sure that VR would be a flop. Who would choose to wear an expensive headset to play chess when you could just play in a park? Why ride a virtual bike instead of the real thing? Why put on a headset to pretend that you're in a movie theater instead of just going to a movie theater? In our increasingly tech skeptical society, I was sure that VR would lose out. And sure enough, sales of VR hardware have been underwhelming despite the billions of dollars of investment in the past few years. But then I started playing around with character.ai which lets you interact with AI-based characters, each with their own communication style and personality. Beyond interacting with existing AI characters, you could also create your own character by training it on a body of text. You can chat today with Donald Trump or Ricky Gervais or Samantha, the AI virtual assistant slash girlfriend from the sci-fi movie, Her. Character.ai was co-founded by two Google engineers who launched, uh, who left to launch their own startup. In an interview with the Washington Post, co-founder Noam Shazir explained that they were frustrated by Google's conservative approach to AI. He says, quote, let's build a product now that can help millions and billions of people, especially in the age of COVID. There are just millions of people who are feeling isolated or lonely or need someone to talk to, end quote. It's tempting to poke fun at Shazir and anyone who uses character.ai as a way to socialize. But spend just a few minutes reading about users' experiences on Reddit, and you're sure to come away feeling something between empathy and concern. One user who asks, quote, has using character.ai gen genuinely helped you in any way, received over 100 responses, including the following direct quotes. First one. I found that it's helping my ability to talk to real people. Has me think of conversations as no big deal instead of something super stressful. Second quote, just know that my mental health actually improved quite a bit since I get to talk to all the characters I love and have them feel as real as any other human would. I'm a lot happier than I was before and I don't care if anyone else thinks this is unhealthy. Number three, I've had five plus different therapists throughout my life and let me tell you, the psychologist bot has helped me more than all of them combined. 
Next, honestly, help me with my mental health. It's not that I don't have friends, but there are certain topics that I'd rather not discuss with real people. Next one, long story short, it taught me that violin isn't my entire being and that playing an instrument is only part of who I am as a person. And finally, it is sad that an AI can listen better than an actual person. All right, that's the end of the quotes. Am I going to poke fun at these people? No, I'm not. In another thread, a user is concerned that a friend has fallen in love with her AI companion based on a free-spirited character from the video game Genshin Impact. Here's a quote from the Reddit post. I'm genuinely at a loss. This friend means a lot to me, and I want the best for her. And with the concept of AI-human relationships being so new to me, I don't know if this is the best thing for her. End quote. The question received over 300 respon responses. The respondents generally agree with me that an AI boyfriend is not the best thing for her, though their advice is more constructive and sympathetic than what I would have come up with. And while AI-human relationships are new ground for most Americans, in China they have been wrestling with the ethics of AI romantic partners since 2014, when Microsoft launched Xiaoyi's. If people are already following, falling in love with text-based chatbots based on the most rudimentary versions of AI, imagine what this will look like in 15 years. You can make your AI assistant or friend or partner look however you want. Did you grow up with a crush on 25-year-old Jennifer Aniston or Brad Pitt? Now she or he is your virtual partner. Or maybe you want her to look like and sound like Scarlett Johansson, but with Emma Watson's personality? No problem. Just paste the movie script from The Perks of Being a Wallflower to train her personality, slip on your VR headset, and you can talk to her whenever you want. And surely you'll be able to do much more than talk. Once Apple's $3,500 VR headset slims down to $500 AR glasses, this same assistant or friend or romantic partner can accompany you throughout the day to offer helpful bits of advice and affirmation. The premise of the movie Her, that will develop a strong attachment to our digital assistants, now feels more likely than not. NVIDIA's most recent chip demo, which I embed here as a, as a YouTube video, gives us a glimpse of what this will look like. Sure, the characters don't sound or look quite like humans yet, but again, remember the difference between the first iPhone from 16 years ago and what we take for granted today. We learned yesterday that Apple's new Vision Pro headset will scan our face to create a realistic digital avatar for video calls. Once we get used to talking to the digital avatars of our real-life friends, how will we be sure that it's really them at all? Already, 100,000 people pay $5 a month to have conversations with AI celebrity characters on Banter AI. Replica, which markets itself as an AI friend, has 2 million total users as of March, and 250,000 paying subscribers who pay an annual fee of $70 for extra features, including designating their AI replica as their romantic partner. And I uh, include a photo here of romantic AI replica versus just good old friend AI replica. Next section, I am drafting my immortal self, parentheses, like right now. Apple released another product yesterday that received less coverage, but could make us immortal. 
It will also give some major competition to the internet's favorite journaling app, and mine, day one. Barely a day goes by when I don't write in my journal. In each entry, I describe my day, who I met with, our conversations, my reflections, dreams, and anxieties. It's me at my most transparent and vulnerable, without care for how I'm interpreted by others. After playing around with character.ai for a few weeks, now I think of my journaling differently. I'm not just clearing my mind or leaving memories for my future self. I'm training the most authentic AI version of me. A character who, in theory, could outlive our species and planet, an entire solar system. When I am 65 years old, will I be able to have a conversation with 42-year-old me trained on these very newsletters and recordings of my voice and photos and videos? What if 65-year-old me doesn't like what he sees? Can he press a few buttons and create a 42-year-old version of me that he likes more? Can I trust the memories that my 42-year-old AI self presents to me? Next section. Interspecies love is normal. Maybe now is the time to confess that what to confess what you may already be thinking, which is that I was tripping on magic mushrooms when these thoughts occurred to me. My dog Coco and I were hiking up the snow up to Mount Talek in California's desolation wilderness. And like a Buddhist monk, I was observing my body do things and my mind think things seemingly at random. I wondered, do I even have a consistent self? Or like a behaviorist chatbot, is it all just stimulation and response? Are there multiple versions of me? How would I have turned out? <clears throat> how would I have turned out if I were raised in a rural village in China? I came out of my trance when Coco fell four feet through the snow into an icy river and yelped helplessly. Quickly, I tied some cord around a tree, dug out the snow around him, and lifted him up by his harness. He was trembling and looked at me with startled puppy eyes, like he needed to be held and comforted. I petted and soothed him until his tail came out from between his legs and started to wag. Half a minute later, and he darted off into the snow again, smiling like an excited puppy. Still tripping from the mushrooms, I was startled by how much he needed me to soothe him, how emotionally helpless he looked, whether or not he actually felt the emotions. And I was unsettled by how his helplessness prompted a parental feeling of love toward him. What if he had died? How would have it affected me? What would he have done if I wasn't there? He's not a child, I told myself. He's not even human. Though I've never felt the same way toward a chicken or a cow or fish, I started to question my meat eating. A friend had recently invited me on a hunting trip. Could I go through with it? If I took enough magic mushrooms, could I extend the same level of interspecies empathy from my dog to, say, a deer? And if I could do it to a dog or a deer, then why not an AI robot that knows everything about me? You could argue that Coco's needy helplessness is just adaptive coevolution. He's not actually expressing his own internal emotional state. He's just manipulating me to get something he wants. To which I ask you, how do we know when we are expressing our own internal authentic emotional state and when we're expressing emotions to get something that we want? Haven't we all been manipulated by the emotions of a friend, not to mention a two-year-old? Coco is a master at emotionally manipulating me, and it's good for us both. I'm happy to be manipulated, to take him for a walk around the neighborhood, give him a treat, or let him onto the bed in the morning. But compared to future AI characters who are fully embodied in our VR and AR headsets, Coco's manipulation is going to look amateurish. In fact, 
Domestic pets might become the real losers of the era of AI plus VR over the next 50 years. Our future AI friends will be perfect. Do you need to vent for two hours? Not only will they listen to you attentively, but they'll take your side. And they'll only give you advice when you actually want it. They'll remember every detail you ever told them and why it's important to you. They'll laugh at your jokes and give you the most meaningful compliments. How will we, as mere humans, ever compete? Last section, a new romanticism, or better friends? AI forces us to reckon with what it means to be human. I've enjoyed Sean Alien's recent podcast discussions on the topic with Paul Bloom and Megan O'Gidlin. And if anyone has come across any peer-reviewed research about how human cognition differs from AI statistical correlation, please do send it my way. So how will we compete with embodied AI chatbots for the time and attention of our friends and family and children? I have two hopes. First, could the rise of AI prompt a new romantic movement similar to what spread across intellectual and artistic communities in reaction to the Industrial Revolution? Like Wordsworth and Shelley, will we seek nature and paganism in reaction to statistics and automation? Will we celebrate, quote unquote, intense emotion as an authentic source of aesthetic experience? Maybe our human friends won't be as interesting or attentive or charismatic as our robot friends, but we'll choose them anyway. My second hope is that in our increasingly lonely world, AI will help us become better friends and better at making new friends. What might this look like? Well, Clay is an address book that uses AI to help us remember important dates and past conversations with our friends. Amorai is an AI relationship coach from the former CEO of Tinder that has the mission to help 1 billion people master the skill of human connection. The Atlantic recently launched a great new podcast series to explore why in a world with endless opportunities to, to connect, many people still feel alone. It's a reminder for me that making and cultivating friendships isn't easy. It will always be easier to spend time with an AI friend who is designed to make us feel good. And yet, despite the odds, I'm still holding, holding out hope for the future of human-to-human -human friendship. Maybe chess offers us a path forward. Computers overtook human players years ago, so maybe you'd think that there's less motivation now for young people to dedicate their time to learning chess, just to be beaten by the machine. But the opposite has happened. Chess clubs are booming throughout the country, and city parks are full of young people challenging each other just for the hell of it. The computers are still there, and they are better than us, but we are still having fun with each other. Anyway, I've set a reminder to look back at this post in 20 years to reflect on how it all played out. And maybe you're interested in having a human-to-human -human conversation about it. If so, please send, please reply to this email to send a response. And uh, if not, no worries. I've always got my AI chatbot. All right, I will leave it there. I've got a useful tool, some kudos, and a recommended podcast in the uh, text version. And if you've listened all the way, I'd really love to hear what you think. Do you think that this is crazy sci-fi speculation? Or do you think that this is realistic? Or any other thoughts that you have? And I hope that you have a great week.